Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight we continue our story, The Gold Bug, by Edgar Allan Poe. I shall not pretend to describe the feelings with which I gazed. Amazement was, of course, predominant. Legrand appeared exhausted with excitement and spoke very few words. Jupiter's countenance wore, for some minutes, as deadly a pallor as it is possible in the nature of things, for anyone's visage to assume. He seemed stupefied, thunder-stricken. Presently he fell upon his knees in the pit, and bearing his naked arms up to the elbows in gold, let them there remain, as if enjoying the luxury of a bath. At length he exclaimed with a deep sigh, as if in a soliloquy, And all this because of the gold bug. This pretty little gold bug. The poor little gold bug. And all this because of the gold bug. That pretty little gold bug. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Answer me that. It became necessary at last that I should arouse both gentlemen to the expediency of removing the treasure. It was growing late and it behooved us to make exertion that we might get everything housed before daylight. It was difficult to say what should be done and much time was spent in deliberation. So confused were the ideas of it all. We finally lightened the box by removing two-thirds of its contents when we were enabled, with some trouble, to raise it from the hole. The articles taken out were deposited among the brambles, and the dog left to guard them, with strict orders from Jupiter neither, upon any pretense, stir from the spot, nor to open his mouth until our return. We then hurriedly made for home with the chest, reaching the hut in safety, but after excessive toil at one o'clock in the morning. Worn out as we were, it was not in human nature to do more immediately. We rested until two and had supper, starting for the hills immediately afterwards, armed with three stout sacks, which by good luck were upon the premises. A little before four we arrived at the pit, divided the remainder of the booty as equally as might be among us, and leaving the holes unfilled, again set out for the hut, at which, for the second time, we deposited our golden burdens, just as the first faint streaks of the dawn gleamed from over the treetops in the east. We were now thoroughly broken down, but the intense excitement of the time denied us repose. After an unquiet slumber of some three or four hours' duration, we arose as if by preconcert to make examination of our treasure. The chest had been full to the brim, and we spent the whole day and the greater part of the next night in a scrutiny of its contents. There had been nothing like order or arrangement, Everything had been heaped in promiscuously. Having assorted all with care, we found ourselves possessed of even vaster wealth than we had at first supposed. In coin, there was rather more than $450,000, estimating the value of the pieces as accurately as we could by the tables of the period. There was not a particle of silver. All was gold of antique date and of great variety. French, Spanish, and German money, with a few English guineas and 
and some counters of which we had never seen specimens before. There were several large and heavy coins so worn that we could make nothing of their inscriptions. It was no American money. The value of the jewels we found more difficulty in estimating. There were diamonds, some of them exceedingly large and fine, a hundred and ten in all, and not one of them small, eighteen rubies of remarkable brilliancy, three hundred and ten emeralds, all very beautiful, and twenty-one sapphires with an opal. These stones had all been broken from their settings and thrown loose in the chest. The settings themselves, which we picked out from among the other gold, appeared to have been beaten up with hammers, as if to prevent identification. Besides all this, there was a vast quantity of solid gold ornaments, nearly two hundred massive finger and ears rings, rich chains, thirty of these if I remember, eighty-three very large and heavy crucifixes, five gold censers of great value, a prodigious golden punch bowl ornamented with richly chased vine leaves and bacchanalian figures with two sword handles exquisitely embossed, and many other smaller articles which I cannot recollect. The weight of these valuables exceeded 350 pounds of a dupois, and in this estimate I have not included 197 superb gold watches, three of the number being worth each $500 if one. Many of them were very old and as timekeepers valueless, the works having suffered more or less from corrosion, but all were richly jeweled and in cases of great worth. We estimated the entire contents of the chest that night at a million and a half dollars. And upon the subsequent disposal of the trinkets and jewels, a few being returned for our own use, it was found that we had greatly undervalued the treasure. When at length we had concluded our examination and the intense excitement of the time had in some measure subsided, Legrand, with who saw that I was dying with impatience, for a solution of this most extraordinary riddle, entered into a full detail of the circumstances connected with it. You remember, said he, that night, when I handed you the rough sketch I had made of the Scarabaeus. You recollect also that I became quite vexed at you for insisting that my drawing resembled a death's head. When you first made this assertion, I thought you were jesting, but afterwards I called to mind the peculiar spots on the back of the insect and admitted to myself that your remark had some little foundation to it. Still, the sneer at my graphic powers irritated me, for I am considered a good artist, and therefore, when you handed me the scrap of parchment, I was about to crumple it up and throw it angrily into the fire. The scrap of paper, you mean, I said. No, it had much of the appearance of paper, and at first I supposed it to be such, but when I came to draw upon it, I discovered it at once to be a piece of very thin parchment. It was quite dirty, you remember. Well, as I was in the very act of crumpling it up, my glance fell upon the sketch at which you have been looking, and you may imagine my astonishment when I perceived, in fact, figure of a death's head just where, it seemed to me, I had made the drawing of the beetle. For a moment I was much too amazed to think with accuracy— I knew that my design was very different in detail from this, although there was a certain similarity in general outline. Presently I took a candle and, seating myself at the other end of the room, proceeded to scrutinize the parchment more closely. Upon turning it over, I saw my own sketch upon the reverse, 
just as I had made it. My first idea now was mere surprise at the really remarkable similarity of outline, at the singular coincidence involved in the fact that, unknown to me, there should have been a skull upon the other side of the parchment, immediately beneath my figure of the scarabaeus, and that this skull, not only in outline but in size, should so closely resemble my drawing. I say the singularity of this coincidence absolutely stupefied me for it. This is the usual effect of such coincidences. This is the usual effect of such coincidences. The mind struggles to establish a connection, a sequence of cause and effect, and being unable to do so, suffers a series of temporary paralysis. But when I recovered from this stupor, there dawned upon me gradually a conviction which startled me even far more than the coincidence. I began distinctly, positively, to remember that there had been no drawing upon the parchment when I made my sketch of the scarabaeus. I became perfectly certain of this, for I recollected turning up first one side and then the other in search of the cleanest spot. Had the skull been then there, of course, I would not have failed to notice it. Here was indeed a mystery which I felt it impossible to explain, but even at that early moment there seemed to glimmer, faintly, within the most remote and secret chambers of my intellect, a glow-worm-like conception of that truth with last night's adventure brought to so magnificent a demonstration. I arose at once and, putting the parchment securely away, dismissed all further reflection until I should be alone. When you had gone and when Jupiter was fast asleep, when you had gone and when Jupiter was fast asleep, I betook myself to a more methodical investigation of the affair. In the first place, I considered the manner in which the parchment had come into my possession. The spot where we discovered the scarabaeus was on the coast of the mainland, about a mile eastward of the island, and but a short distance above high water mark. Upon my taking hold of it, it gave me a sharp bite, which caused me to let it drop. Jupiter, with his accustomed caution, before seizing the insect, which had flown toward him, looked about him for a leaf, or something of that nature, by which to take hold of it. It was at this moment that his eyes, and mine also, fell upon the scrap of parchment, which I then supposed to be paper. It was lying half buried in the sand, a corner sticking up. Near the spot where we found it, I observed the remnants of the hull of what appeared to have been a ship's longboat. The wreck seemed to have been there for a very great while, for the resemblance to boat timbers could scarcely be traced. Well, Jupiter picked up the parchment, wrapped the beetle in it, and gave it to me. Soon afterwards we turned to go home, and on the way met the lieutenant. I showed him the insect, and he begged me to let him take it to the fort. Upon my consenting, he thrust it forthwith into his waistcoat pocket, without the parchment in which it had been wrapped and which I had continued to hold in my hand during his inspection. Perhaps he dreaded my changing my mind, and thought it best to make sure of the prize at once. You know how enthusiastic he is on all subjects connected with natural history. At the same time, without being conscious of it, I must have deposited the parchment in my own pocket. You remember that when I went to the table, for the purpose of making a sketch of the beetle, I found no paper where it was usually kept. I looked in the drawer and found none there. I searched my pockets, hoping to find an old letter. When my hand fell upon the parchment, I thus detailed the precise mode in which it came into my possession, for the circumstances impressed me with peculiar force. 
No doubt you will think me fanciful, but I had already established a kind of connection. I had put together two links of a great chain. There was a boat lying upon a seacoast, and not far from the boat was a parchment, not a paper, but the skull depicted upon it. You will, of course, ask, where is the connection? I replied that the skull, or death's head, is a well-known emblem of the pirate. The flag of the death's head is hoisted in all engagements. I have said that the scrap was parchment and not paper. Parchment is durable, almost imperishable. Matters of little moment are rarely consigned to parchment, since, for the mere ordinary purposes of drawing or writing, it is not nearly so well adjusted as paper. This reflection suggested some meaning, some relevancy, in the death's head. I did not fail to observe, also, the form of the parchment. Although one of its corners had been, by some accident, destroyed, it could be seen that the original form was oblong. It was just such a slip, indeed, as might have been chosen for a memorandum, for a record of something to be long remembered and carefully preserved. But, I interposed, you say that the skull was not upon the parchment when you made the drawing of the beetle. How, then, do you trace any connection between the boat and the skull, since this latter, according to your own admission, must have been designed, God only knows how or by whom, at some period subsequent to your sketching the Scarabaeus? Ah, hereupon turns the whole mystery, although the secret, at this point, I had comparatively little difficulty in solving. My steps were sure and could afford but a single result. I reasoned, for example, thus. When I drew the scarabaeus, there was no skull apparent upon the parchment. When I had completed the drawing, I gave it to you and observed you narrowly until you returned it. You, therefore, did not design the skull, and no one else was present to do it. Then it was not done by human agency, and nevertheless it was done. At this stage of my reflections, I endeavored to remember, and did remember, with entire distinctness, every incident which occurred about the period in question. The weather was chilly, oh, rare and happy accident, and a fire was blazing upon the hearth. I was heated with exercise and sat near the table. You, however, had drawn a chair close to the chimney. Just as I placed the parchment in your hand, and as you were in the act of inspecting it, Wolf the Newfoundland entered and leaped upon your shoulders. With your left hand you caressed him and kept him off, while your right, holding the parchment, was permitted to fall listlessly between your knees and in close proximity to the fire. At one moment I thought the blaze had caught it and was about to caution you, but before I could speak, you had withdrawn it and were engaged in its examination. When I considered all these particulars, I doubted not for a moment that heat had been the agent in bringing to light upon the parchment the skull which I saw designed upon it. You are well aware that chemical preparations exist, and have existed time out of mind by which it is possible to write upon either paper or vellum so that the characters shall become visible only when subjected to the action of fire. The zaphyr, digested in aquaregia, and diluted with four times its weight of water, is sometimes employed. A green tint results. The regulus of cobalt, dissolved in spirit of nitre, gives a red. These colors disappear at longer or shorter intervals after the material upon written cools. 
but again becomes apparent upon the reapplication of heat. I now scrutinize the death's head with care. Its outer edges, the edges of the drawing nearest the edge of the vellum, were far more distinct than the others. It was clear that the action of the caloric had been imperfect or unequal. I immediately kindled a fire and subjected every portion of the parchment to a glowing heat. At first, the only effect was the strengthening of the faint lines in the skull. But upon persevering in the experiment, they became visible at the corner of the slip, diagonally opposite to the spot in which the death's head was delineated, the figure of what I had first supposed to be a goat. A closer scrutiny, however, satisfied me that it was intended for a kid. Ha-ha, said To be sure, I have no right to laugh at you. A million and a half of money is too serious a matter for mirth. But you are not about to establish a third link in your chain. You will not find any special connection between your pirates and a goat. Pirates, you know, have nothing to do with goats. They appertain to the farming interest. But I have just said the figure was not that of a goat. Well, a kid, then, pretty much the same thing. Pretty much, but not altogether, said Legrand. You may have heard of one Captain Kid. I at once looked upon the figure of the animal as a kind of punning or hieroglyphical signature. I say, however, because its position upon the vellum suggested this idea. The death's head at the corner diagonally opposite had in the same manner the air of a stamp or a seal. But I was sorely put out by the absence of all else, of the body to my imagined instrument, of the text for my context. I presume you expected to find a letter between the stamp and the signature. Something of that kind. The fact is, I felt irresistibly impressed with the presentiment of some vast good fortune impending. I can scarcely say why. Perhaps, after all, it was rather a desire than an actual belief. But do you know that Jupiter's silly words about the bug being of solid gold had a remarkable effect upon my fancy? And then the series of accidents and coincidence, these were so very extraordinary. Do you observe how mere an accident it was that these events should have occurred upon the sole day of all the year in which it has been or may be sufficiently cool for fire? and that without the fire or without the intervention of the dog at the precise moment in which he appeared, I should never have become aware of the death's head, and so never the possessor of the treasure. We'll return with our story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like this one to feature in the show. And if you have any suggestions, please email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)